Hello, my quarantine friends. You're listening to the Worth the Fight podcast radio program. Episode 2 Kevin Custer, photographer, activist, social media veteran. Here are your hosts, Dustin Fox and Brian Bros. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Worth of Fight podcast. I, as always, am Brian Bros. And as always, I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Mr. Dustin Fox. What's going on? I am the esteemed Dustin Fox. Yeah. Well, guys, welcome to our second episode. This week we have the incredible Mr. Kevin Custer. I love this guy. Yeah. But I will say, just to start things off, this has been... Uh, uh, an interesting week, guys. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> so here's the deal, friends. Um, this is we've been working on this podcast for like a while. It's been kind of a labor of love for both Brian and I. Um, we just finished recording this episode you're listening to right now. Um, two episodes that we've got into it. We saved up all of our money, our pocket change, bought an entire podcast studio setup, and like. Last Saturday, some meth heads came into my garage and, like, walked off with my entire podcast studio. So... Literally everything. Literally everything. So we are currently recording this on some borrowed gear. Yes. Actually, real quick. I want to shout out our our good friend, Mr. Jeremy Porth. Jeremy! Over at a Legendary Saga podcast. He's letting us borrow his mic so that way we can record this intro, get it out to you guys, so... Please, if you haven't already, go go and subscribe. Listen to his podcast. He has some a legendary saga. A legendary saga is the name pretty, of it. Pretty epic stories over there, guys. Legendary, you might say. Yeah. So, okay. So, Kevin Custer is who you're about to hear from. I am super excited to talk to this guy. I've known him for a little while. Um, met him when he was doing his work with Instagram. Here's three things you need to know about Kevin. In order, number one, he was the senior photo editor slash director of content of a tiny boudoir that's not the right word what's the word i'm looking for uh niche let's say uh magazine called playboy playboy second thing you need to know about him is that he is the ceo and partner uh one of the founding individuals of jj community jj community if you are uh like an early instagram adopter you'll know exactly who that is we'll get more into that during the interview third thing you need to know about him and the coolest thing about him he is the founder of something called watts of love Watts of Love basically provides solar technology and education to those living in poverty overseas for the most part. So he's over here bringing lights to uh, cultures, people who are using kerosene, who basically are don't have access to light or electricity. He's killing it. Love this guy. Wouldn't you agree, Brian? Oh, he's incredible. Yeah. Stand guys, up, you're dude. not going to be disappointed in this episode. We cover so much ground. I mean, literally, going from Playboy... To a philanthropist now who is it's helping a bit of provide, a stretch. So like it, it's quite a journey, and he he definitely takes us through all the the steps he goes through. So it's, it's so pretty awesome. we're not even going to make you wait any longer. So here it is, our interview with Kevin Custer. I I kind of have a question for you, and on that regard, talking about success and um, what I, I when I think about you, I can I can picture at least three really obvious uh, different ways and times that you have like different areas that you have found great success. I look at your Playboy career early on. I look at the JJ uh, platform, which is how I originally met you. Um, I look at Watts of Love and I, I see those as some, you know, you've, you've excelled in at least those three fields that are, that are pretty public. Did you know from the beginning that you were just going to do those and you were going to keep working until, until you were where you wanted to be? Or was this one of 50 things that you tried and failed at to get to where you are? What, what did that look like for you? 
Really good question. Um, you know, I, and that's a really good question, and 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 it, it might be a long-winded answer, only because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. You know, if I look at first my first career, right, my first job out of school was with Playboy, and um, to be really honest with you, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, who had a contact, and they hired me as an intern. Okay, so I got my foot in the door. Um, because a friend of a friend knew someone who worked there. But the difference was, is when I was there, and they're going to age me, they were just starting to do design the magazine using computers. Everything <laughs> wow, wow. to that was <laughs> everything was done by hand. Jeez. And what I did is I went to my mom and dad, and I, I, I actually remember very clearly, I, I, I took a personal loan from them of $5,000. And I bought a Mac 2CX and a printer and a scanner. And my whole idea behind it was, is as, as this intern and these art directors were coming on, I'm like, any question that they ask me, anything that um, I don't know, I'm going to go home at night, teach myself, and then I'm going to show up next day and be able to show them how to do it. And these were really, really talented art directors but because it was a new technology, um, you know, their skills didn't translate right away because they had to learn the technology. So for me, I didn't have their skills, but I could learn, you know, and I had a desire to learn how to accomplish their goals. So from that standpoint of view, um, I saw an opportunity I and I made it work for me, um, you know, and then and then I just made myself a really, really valuable resource. Um, but it's crazy too, because like really at Playboy, you know, it was a it was a it was a blessing and it was a curse <laughs> from the standpoint of view that um, that was my first job out of school and I was there for almost twenty years. Yeah, it's an interesting um, thing to to have on so, your resume too, I'd imagine later on. <laughs> so it was one of those things where I didn't have a really good gauge, right? I knew I was working with great artists, great photographers, great illustrators. You know, I knew I was working with some of the best, but I didn't have a good perspective of what that really meant, right? Mm, yeah. So the level of excellence and, perf you know, perfection that we were working in, you know, that was just what I was thrown into. So I was like, well, isn't this what everybody does? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, and I didn't know that that's not how everybody approaches everything. Yeah. Um, and then it was one of those things where also one of the things that was very frustrating for me at the time at Playboy is, um, you know, I remember one time talking to my boss, I said, you know, I'm really frustrated because I don't own anything, right? I do a little bit of fashion. I do a little model stuff. I do a little product stuff. I produce live events. I, you know, have directed and produced some of the TV stuff. So, and I found that frustrating because I didn't own anything. Hmm. And he flipped it on me and he's like, well, that's one of the things that I love. He goes, I see you as kind of like the sixth man. So I can pull you off the bench and I can have you play a number of different positions. Um, and that was really frustrating for me. But really, in retrospect, it was by far the best thing that happened to me at Playboy. Because then once I left, I had all of these different skills. Um, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what chapter two was. And the funny thing is, at first, you know, when I left, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll go and I'll, 
I'll interview. I'll interview at some ad agencies and creative houses. And I walked in and, you know, I'd put down my CV and I'd show them my reel and they'd be like, okay, so like, what is it that you do? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I can produce, I can direct, I can shoot photography, I can edit video, I can be a creative director, I can be a copywriter. Like, what do you, and they were like, no, but what do you do? <laughs> and they wanted me to be in one specific category. It, it kind of hurts you to be a jack of all trades at that point. Yeah. And they, and they, they did not want that. They were yeah. like, okay, you're an editor. Okay. You're a photographer. They wanted me to be in a very, um, you know, siloed role. And at the time I kind of was like, well, I don't want to do that, you know, in the way I kind of saw myself as, I'm a conductor. I am a creative conductor where I'm really good at collaborating with uh, a variety of different creatives. Um, I, yes, I can get in the orchestra pit, right? And this is just my analogy. I can get in the orchestra pit. I can play the violin a little bit. I can play the, you know, the horn a little bit. I can play the guitar a little bit. But there's people out there that are masters at it. I'm not a master. But what I am a master at is conducting all of those creatives to work together to make an incredible end product. So that was, it took me a while to figure that out. You know, it took me a while to figure out that that is a, 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 tr a real skill set um, that's unique and kind of uh, puts me in a unique position. Um, so then really what happened is, uh, you know, the JJ community came along and, you know, Josh had started this great community on Instagram um, through a really bizarre <laughs> way we connected. And this is just and, to just to give it some context. What what year was this? Because this was early on in Instagram. I want to yeah, make this sure early people social media on that. Oh, yeah. I had I mean, never this, heard at the time was, of anyone doing what you were doing at, yeah. the, at this time. Yeah, it was it was probably eight years ago, eight years ago. You know, Josh is we believe Josh was one of the first. Um, thousands of people that downloaded the app. Wow. Um, he used to, he used to communicate with the two founders, you know, uh, Mikey and, and uh, Mike and, 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 I mean, excuse me, Kevin and Joey. And he, they were like, he was like this photographer who started to, you know, put tips and tricks up. And they're like, you know, on his feet. They're like, wow, man, that's really cool. We never thought anybody would do anything like that. And it's really neat because he still got all these emails of him communicating with them. And he was really the first person who started to use hashtags on Instagram. And he was like, um, hey, you know, there's, you know, just a couple thousand, thousand people on this app. And he's like, hey, I, I saw your photos and I'd like to repost one of your photos on my feed and tell my hundred followers this really great photographer and that they should go and follow you. And it was very organic. It was very natural for Josh to do stuff like that, but it was so counterculture because even at that time, everybody wanted more followers, right? So these sovereigns like, wait a minute, you want your followers to follow me and you want to promote me? Heck yeah. <laughs> and it started to grow and people start other than the popular page, people started to come to Josh and they're like, Hey, can you promote my work? Can you tell people about, tell people about me? And Josh is like getting overwhelmed. So he started to tell photographers, Hey, go to your photo and put on 
hashtag JJ. And then that way I'll look at this hashtag JJ and I'll see that you know that you submitted images and then I'll look at it and if I like your stuff then I'll tell my followers to go follow you. Um, you know, the just a side note of that, we haven't used hashtag JJ in probably six and a half, seven years. Oh, probably wow. six probably seven years. We haven't used it. And it's still to this day one of the uh right. top twenty five used hashtags in the world. Wow. Jeez, people are still using it. That's crazy. Yeah, they still use it. Um, and it used to be one of those things where if you look back on all these articles, how to get more followers, <laughs> one of the lines would always be use hashtag JJ. And they, people didn't even know what it meant. <laughs> they didn't even know how so, to use a hashtag in that, that sort of form. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So really when I came to him and Josh and I connected, um, I had such an emotional response to Instagram. You know, when I left Playboy, I was really, really, really burned out. I just so burned out of photography and storytelling, and I didn't even think I was going to stay in the industry anymore. And um, when I came to Instagram, all of a sudden I was no longer, you know, the senior, senior photo editor, managing content director of Playboy magazine. I was just a guy. And I was on this app, and I was shooting relatively good photos on my phone, which had never been done before. And I was connecting with people all across the globe. And it was, it was, it was like a drug for me. I, I, all my creativity, all, all my enthusiasm came back. And then when Josh and I kind of formed our partnership, I just said, I'm like, Hey, if I'm having this of a greater response from this app, from this mobile photography movement, I know businesses are going to catch up to this. Um, and that's where we really started to, open up the community and, and partner uh, with different corporations who wanted to be associated with the JJ community and get access to our followers. And we, uh, we started to create and do some really cool stuff. And had I not had my experience of Playboy as like the sixth man, I wouldn't have known how to do all this and how to grow this community and, and to make it what it is in today. Um, and then the exact same story happened with lots of love, you know, all those skills that I developed being a sixth man at Playboy um, became critical to the development of lots of love. So, and and I want to go back to uh, each one of these things here in a minute, but yeah, um, sure. the so with well, let me first say so when where I met you, um, my sister, my younger sister Jenna, who you know, um, we uh, she was just getting into photography, um, you know, and the most accessible phone or f camera in existence is the phone, right? Um, so she had that and was kind of messed around with that. And so I went um, really just as a big brother um, to one of your photo meetups. You had you were touring, uh, giving away a Fiat, as I mentioned earlier, that I did not win. So um, and uh, and we went and, and had a great time. You were a blast. Everybody that was there was a blast. My sister calls you Uncle Kevin now for the rest of her life. Uh, and it was great. And, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So was, I'm sure you have a million experiences like that, uh, from that time. It, it really was. I mean, it was, um, it was a Renaissance. I mean, you know, again, I know Instagram has continued to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but really the, the, um, the community and the connections and the friendships that that app created probably the, first three years of its existence was absolutely incredible. I mean, and even to this day, 
in terms of connecting with people, like this is even a perfect example of it. You know, here it is years later, you know, I'm doing a podcast with you and I have some of my, you know, best friends and creative collaborators from that app. Um, and I had never experienced anything like that. Um, and I think it's still out there with Instagram, but not like it was. It's become just another social media channel. Whereas if initially it was photographers slash creatives connecting with other people that loved photography. It it was more personal and less business centric as it is now. Kind of is what you're saying. Yeah. It was a huge deal where it was like, you know, if you, and that was the other thing too, like if someone followed you, right, it sounds silly, but if someone followed you, that was a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a really big deal because that person said, you know, because that was the whole thing. Like, how do you get more followers? One of the things out there was like, well, you can't be following a ton of people, right? <laughs> because if you're following a ton of people, the algorithm's going to mess things up and you're not going to get more followers. Okay. So people would really curate who that follow. But even more importantly, when you followed someone, you knew unequivocally their image was going to show up in your feed. And that's the thing that was so great that I think Instagram's lost a lot of its power and Facebook as well, because now they've got these curated galleries. So I don't always see the photos or the posts of of the people that I work really hard to find. And I'm like, no, I love this person's work. I want to make sure I see their work. Right. What's interesting to me is that I think that in general, a, a lot of the art communities, definitely um, the L.A. scene and just, you know, film and and photography, all those scenes historically have been very closed off and exclusive, uh, If mm-hmm. you were, especially if you were a professional. If you had had any sort of success or made a name for yourself, you would hang out with other people who made a name for themselves, and you all got to decide who else was let in the building or not. Uh, sure. And I think that Instagram came at an interesting time where it basically flipped that entire script and said, no, literally anyone with a camera of any quality is a photographer. Fight us about it. And especially now that people are making six, seven figures on it. People can post, you know, one photo and make $50,000. The same from photo a, every a, day of their yeah. face. Which is, yeah. That, which and is then, you know, I'll, I'll add to what you just said, because I totally agree with what you said. The other thing that also, again, was so counterculture with Instagram and mobile photography is the willingness to want to share. You know, like when I came up at Playboy, there literally were photographers. True story. There were photographers that would change the settings on their lights and move their lights, right? Or break down what they set up when they were done because they didn't want the next guy to see their tricks, wow. <laughs> to see their techniques, right? Because it's like, you know, think about it. It's like, it's like a magician, yeah. right? If I have this great trick, I don't want anyone else to know my trick. And that was the philosophy that I was really, uh, I came up in. And for me, that was just, that was the way it was. It was like survival. And yeah, then all doors. of a sudden you come into this Instagram mobile photography movement and people are like, Hey, how'd you do that? Wait, what's that app called? How do you use that? I mean, the, the organic sharing was totally counter to what I was used to. And it was so exciting and so fun. 
what caused you, what was the transition from that to Watts of Love? Did you, uh, I see, it looks like from what I can see online that you're still involved in some way with JJ. Is that, is that old news? Is that, what's, what's the story on that right now? So we are still doing things on JJ. We do programming every day. We have different theme every day. Um, you know, Josh, he wanted to kind of focus on his family and some of his personal photography. And for me, lots of love just took off. Um, really, lots of love and JJ were kind of happen, happening simultaneously. You know, to be really honest with you, it was like lots of love was this idea. Um, you knew my sister had gone to the Philippines. She'd had a very profound experience and felt called to bring people solar lights because she was introduced to, you know, this whole world uh, of people that had, had never had access to electricity that were using kerosene. And uh, kerosene not only was it dangerous and toxic, uh, but it was very expensive. It kept them in poverty. Um, so she kind of had this idea, didn't really know what it was meant. And then, you know, after about a year or so sitting on that whole idea, um, the uh, the pastor who she had met uh, while in the Philippines. She was talking to him. She's like, yeah, I'm kind of feeling called to do this. And he's like, great. Why don't you bring a thousand lights? I just got, you know, uh, stationed in this small island called Ealing Island. And there's no running water, no electricity, no doctors. Bring a thousand lights. And that was the first trip um, that we distributed lights. Um, the crazy thing is we couldn't get any of the lights past customs. <laughs> but we had three we had three lights that we took with us and my old thinking clicked in where I'm like, okay, we need to make content out of these three lights. You know, so we're like, who are the three people that need these lights the wow. most? <laughs> and those were the three people that we distributed those three lights to. And to this day, those three stories are foundational to lots of love and <laughs> the impact that those lights had on those uh, people and families was profound and immediate. You're saying that you tried to bring a thousand lights over and 997 of them didn't make it through? You had three? No, all thousand didn't. <laughs> oh, so oh they, you had we, three separately off on they had, they had packed three in their luggage. Wow. So gosh. That's where we had three of them. You know, wow. They just, so they if they hadn't done that, you would have had nothing. Purely by chance. Oh my gosh. And that's what set up the foundation yeah. for, for Watts of Love. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was really, like, that was right when J.J., when I was really starting to work with J.J., kind of like right around that that same year. Um, and neither one of them was a full-time gig. You know, it was just something that I was doing as I was trying to figure out what was I going to do as a career. <clears throat> um, you know, so it's very funny because people... And this is a very long way to get to one of your first original questions, Justin, is I can't, I would have never chose this path, you know, and people are like, oh my gosh, the way you, after Playboy, the way you rebranded yourself and, you know, you dropped everything Playboy and you started this Instagram community and then you did this nonprofit, the way you rebranded yourself was so great. I'm like, what are you? What are you talking about? Like that, <laughs> none of that was none of that was conscious. None of it was like this is what I'm gonna do, you know. And and I think for the people that listen to this podcast, that's the one thing that I'd tell you. My story isn't like everybody's story, but each of us has their own story to tell. And with JJ, JJ community, and with with lots of love, I just took what I thought was the next best step. 
Uh, I didn't have a big, huge, grand scheme. I thought, I knew Watch Love, I knew it was super powerful. I'd seen the transformation of those three people. I knew Instagram and mobile photography was super powerful because I had felt it and I had connected with people. But beyond, you know, what the goal or that objective was, what either one of those two entities was going to become, I had no clue. What do you think? We'd, I, I'm curious because you mentioned, you know, three lives uh, affected, impacted by these three lights. Um, what can you just give like a just like an idea of like a before and after of someone's life in a third world situation that was pre light and post light? Like, what is it? What does that look like? What does that do? Give people some insight, kind of into that. Sure. So I, I'll kind of go back to um, one of the first light recipients. Her name was Emily, one of the three. And we gave her this light. She was a mother of seven children. And the next day, um, matter of fact, I'm looking at her photo right here. The next day, she couldn't wait to see us. And she, like, grabs my sister's hand. We go running to the um, to her hut. And she's like, look, 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 through a translator. And in one night, she'd gotten her light. She didn't burn kerosene that night, so she was saving money by not burning kerosene. She'd used the, the solar light, and in that evening, she had carved a thousand bamboo skewers. Wow! Oh these skewers that are probably about a foot long, and she was going to take those bamboo skewers to the market and sell them to the guy who sells fried bananas. Oh so, gosh. in one night. Not only does she save her money by not burning kerosene and using a solar light, she becomes a small businesswoman overnight. Wow. The next day, we were getting ready to go see another family. And Emily is, like, insisting that she wants to go with us. And she wants to show this family what she has done in one night with her, with her life. So we go to this next family, and when we show up and we meet them, uh, you know, the, the man and the woman are just completely emaciated. And they go to tell us a story that one of them literally has a belt <clears throat> above their belly button pulled really tight. And they'd use these belts to uh, mask their hunger pains. And they had taken salt and water, and they would lick the, the salty water and put it in their mouth so they could have taste because they hadn't eaten. Wow. And geez. Emily... Emily says to them, shows them their new light, and she's carrying her bamboo skewers. And she's like, look, look what I did. I saved money by not burning kerosene, but I also started carving these bamboo skewers, and I made them in a, a thousand skewers in one night. You too can do this. And it was just the power of realizing and seeing everybody wants a chance. Everybody wants an opportunity to provide for their family, but they want it uh, that dignifies them. No one wants a hand out. Everybody wants a hand up. Yeah. And that's what the so these lights can do for people. Wow. That's such a ridiculous that's story. Incredible. Yeah, that's I'm amazed by that. That's that's what we look to replicate today. We are we tell people we're like, look, we're not coming back. You're going to get one light, and this is your opportunity. And what are you going to do with it? 
Are you going to use your light to start a micro business? Are you going to use your light to help educate your child? You know, um, are you going to use this light to increase your work productivity? You know, what are you going to do? Because the light is only a tool. And the light, depending upon, you know, the battery, is, you know, going to last anywhere from five to eight years. And then after that, you know, hopefully you've changed your life, changed your financial life where you can buy the next one. But here's your window of opportunity. What are you going to do with this? Um, and we didn't know it at the time, but Emily and those three recipients to this day are the embodiment of lots of love. You know, we're going to give you an opportunity. We're going to give you this tool. And we've learned, give people this tool, get out of their way and point them in a direction to be successful. That to me is such a, an analogy for like anyone's life that you really, everyone has a tool that's probably been given to them that in the time that they didn't earn or deserve it necessarily. Um, they just have it and it's for a limited time. And you, you might not you even realize you have it. What are you going to do? How how are you going to between now and when that tool is used up or evaporates or whatever? How are you going to change yeah. your life in a sustainable way that you won't need it in the future? That you can be independent. That, that's that's mind blowing to me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I I think, and I just I want to uh, rewind a little bit because if, if I look at just like your the career that I sort of can see from from my perspective of you where, you know, you start at Playboy, you're the sixth man there, um, you go to, to JJ and you you use a lot of those skills that you use and you hone some new ones. Um, you you definitely are what you know, I would say like a community manager even, a community director. Um, mm-hmm. Then go to Watts of Love and, are, and there basically is the culmination of everything before it uh, from my perspective. Um yeah. I'm wondering, so first of all, I think that there's a lot of people and I've, I've looked a lot online to try to see if I, if this answer exists or if you've talked about it before, I really couldn't find it. Um, I think that there's probably a lot of people that see your work at Watts of Love. Maybe they're religious. Maybe they just, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, and they contrast that with your early work at Playboy and it's just, they're not, they don't get it. They're not buying in all the way. They don't see. <laughs> Yeah. I I know you it's, know it's these a, people. Yeah, it's a sharp lift. It, yeah, sure. So what is what do you say to them, or do you, uh, you know, whatever you're willing to say, really? But I mean, what first of all, what are the misconceptions about your career at Playboy? I mean, you'd you've produced some stuff that some people would call pornographic. Some people would call mm-hmm. art. Uh, what are your thoughts on it now versus then? Do you still see it as an asset? Would you do it again? That's like fifty questions I just gave you, but. What I'm, I guess, what I'm getting at is, how does somebody, uh, how how now do you justify that, uh, or do you? I would not have been able to do what I've done for Watts of Love had I not had that experience at Playboy. And I guess what I would ultimately say is this: for some reason, and I'm not putting myself in that category, but I am drawing a parallel. If I read as I do in the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament. God tends to choose what people believe are the least worthy and the last people that should be chosen to work for him. And I guess I would put myself in that category. I am the least, I would probably have been the last person that anybody would have chosen or seen doing what I'm doing. 
but yet I am completely humbled and honored to be doing what I'm doing. And I believe, and I know for me, um, my technical skills and my creative skills were honed and developed at Playboy. But I believe in this second half of my life, I made a very conscious choice that I didn't know how, I didn't know what it meant, and I didn't know what. But after I left Playboy, I had a very big life experience, a change, and I said, God, all of my skills, everything that I've learned, everything that I do now, I want to do it for you. And I had no idea what that meant. I just knew I wanted to close that door behind me, and I just wanted to do something that gave him honor. And ultimately, that's where lots of love came along. And I also believe that in some respects, that's where JJ came along, um, because I learned so much about community there. Um, so that's how I kind of, I, I justify it. And, you know, for me, um, I would never want to, I it, this way. it was the best experience of my life that I never want to repeat. Yeah, and I definitely think, you know, that in terms of JJ, I mean, you were for sure a blessing to my little sister, to my family. And I mean, you, I know you're still great friends with my mom as well. Um, that, mm-hmm. that was definitely a blessing. I would, and I, I don't think anyone would argue that lots of love is God's work, whether you believe in such things or not. And, and this is not a Christian podcast per se, but, you know, we, we love hearing about that. And yeah, my personal, sure. my question for you, I think, is just to clarify. So you're, you were saying, you said you had an experience post Playboy. Uh, were you? Would you have considered yourself a person of faith or a Christian during the Playboy, or was that was that a later in life thing for you? I always had it. I always had um, some idea and, and sense of faith, but you know, like what happens with many people, um, college. I really started to just push it out of my life, and then when I was at Playboy, it just. Um, wasn't really compatible. So I just, I, you know, the way I've described it is I just took it and I put it on the shelf mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, I'm just going to be a good person. Right. Um, and, but in terms of an act of faith and developing my faith and not at all. And it had just gotten to the point where, um, you know, it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't a part of my life. Um, you know, and then, you know, when my life kind of came unglued and came undone, you know, many times, you know, when you fall to your knees, the only place you can look is up. And that's what happened to me. Cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to shoot this back over to Brian. Um, I have a couple more questions, but I would love to just get back to some of these icebreakers because I'm very interested in oh, yeah, we still, your answers we still in them. Handful of these. Um, and then we can definitely yeah. jump back in here. Um, yeah, I really like this one. So how has a failure set you up for, for later success? Do you have a, do you have a favorite f- failure that you go back to and, and think back on at all? Gosh, you know, um, that's interesting, you know, because I, I if I'm really being honest, I am failure adverse. Mm. I do not like to fail. <laughs> um, and, and I'm just being honest. It's like there is, I guess it's probably rooted in a, you know, if you were to put me on a, a on a psychiatrist, you know, chair, it's probably because I don't want to be perceived as um, not good enough or smart enough or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So I don't like to fail. 
So for me, I tend to be very thoughtful and um, I plan before I act. I think the my biggest failure, gosh, I'm struggling with what would be my biggest failure. Because I'm also one of those people where, again, I just, I also, even though I'm, even though I'm, you know, failure adverse, like I just said, I also just don't believe in failure. Mm-hmm. I believe that there is something inherently always good. And you can always find something good out of, quote unquote, a perceived failure. You know, mm-hmm. it might not reveal itself you know, for a couple of days or a month or a year or several years. So for me, and I'm not, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I just, I don't measure my life as like, Oh my God, that was an epic failure. Mm-hmm. Do I have things that I wish I, like I said, I wish I didn't take that journey. I wish I didn't get my butt kicked, but boy, standing where I'm at today, I'm super thankful. Yeah. Having, having yeah. that, having that perspective now, now that you're farther along in the journey in the moment, you're not, you know, correct that, but now in the now moment, gone it's like it. this, this hurts. This is really painful. So let's talk about the, the not failure, the, uh, you know, kind of the overarching, uh, ideal, but failure, the feeling, uh, in the moment when you have an outcome in mind, you've worked really hard for that outcome. It doesn't even come close to happening and you're in mm-hmm. that moment. What? do you say to yourself what do you do in that situation what what does it look like for you to pick yourself up do you and do you try again do you try something else what is what's going on in your head in that moment you know so one of the, one of my main roles at playboy was to be a photo editor right so that means i was constantly critiquing and selecting other creatives work and i can remember at times there, there's two things that i'm going to connect one, I remember very clearly being in art school, and there was an amazing teacher by the name of John Swindell, and he would, you know, have everybody put their artwork up, and he's like, okay. He goes, so when you get up, he's like, don't tell me how long you worked. Don't tell me how much money you put in. Don't tell me, you know, what your concept was. Put it up there and be quiet and let your audience judge it uh, because all of those things that I just mentioned are irrelevant. And that was so profound for me to hear someone say that early in my career. And then when I became an editor, that was one of those things that I, that I had to take that into it where you're working with the people who are in the field working their tails off, working super hard, trying, you know, to be successful. And you're also spending money, right? And there's a time crunch and all of this stuff. And, and there'd be times where someone would be like, Oh my God. I worked so hard, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I really, really, this is what I was going for. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't work. But this over here, this works. And they'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> like, that was just like, I just did it. And like, yeah, like, no, that's really strong. That's really good. And I learned to, for my own work, to not judge it based on effort. That's really good. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes the creative muse the creative genius shows up and it has nothing to do with effort and has nothing to do with money and has nothing to do with talent sometimes it's being in the right place at the right time and having the right skills and you know so you know i heard a great line one time kevin costner not custer costner said you work just as hard to make a really bad movie as you do a really good one 
Based on that, I mean, uh, there's one other thing that we have not talked about yet that I saw um, just a little bit of online. I was doing a little bit of research and I found this and I'm curious what what it was for you. I know uh, you, you've done some stuff with Watts of Love and some different stuff, but I saw um, the that you photographed a leper colony. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know a whole lot about that. I'd love to know the origins of the idea and why. Um, yeah, how that all yeah, came what, about. What What were you thinking? <laughs> so, well, I would say to 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 this day, uh, unequivocally, you know, I, and I'm not just saying this. I've I've worked with celebrities. I've worked with politicians. I've you know I've worked with some you know very well known people in the world. Um, but that was by far the most profound project. And that's a, that's a, that's, it wasn't a project. That was the most profound opportunity experience of my life. Um, and I was humbled to use my skills and gifts uh, in that way. But the origin of that was um, several years ago when Nepal was devastated uh, by a massive earthquake, um, Watch Love went over to distribute lights. And we went because in a time of crisis and natural disasters, light is one of the best ways for recovery and medical. And so we went over to distribute some lights. And at the end of the trip, we happened to hear that there was a leper colony uh, not too far outside of Kathmandu. Um, So my sister and I were like, let's go and let's see what, you know, because there was also one thing that you, that Nepal was devastated. And, you know, the people were even afraid to go into their homes to do anything. And, you know, these are people that had very, very little, and then everything they had is destroyed. So where do you find the motivation to begin again? And, you know, in Nepal, um, it's in the caste system. So um, the people that are affected with leprosy are considered, you know, the lowest of the low. You know, um, the outcast, the, the ultimate outcast. And we went to go and, you know, we only had a couple lights left, but we went and we're like, okay, we're going to give them. Um, and we showed up and, um, the person that was in charge of the colony let us in and like, we, you know, again, we just, we didn't know what we were doing. We just went, we distributed lights, you know, these two lights, I think we left two or three lights, but we were so moved by, that space and those people um, that we promised them that we would come back and give lights to everybody. Um, and it was incredibly moving. But at the time, the first time I was there, um, oh, you know what? I can remember the thing that I regret now. And this is part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in this leper colony and um, I, was, I was really concerned about taking photos. Um, so I, and they, they, they said it was okay, but I could tell the people did not want to be photographed. Mm. And, um, I kind of respected, I could just feel it. Right. Even though the, the guy who ran the place was like, no, no, you can take it. You take it. I could tell the people did. And, um, you know, I've got this big DSLR wrapped around my neck and I knew if I picked it up, you know, people would scatter. And at one point in time, this woman who had lost her eyes and her, her hands, uh, and her feet came up to my sister and was trying to communicate with her. And my sister, um, went and, and hugged her and, you know, just, I didn't even think about it. I just reacted. But at that moment I took my iPhone and I captured an image of it, but the phone was 
you know, kind of at my side where you couldn't necessarily know, wouldn't know I was taking it. And I felt like at that moment, and, and that was wrong, but I felt, you know, I responded where it's like, okay, these ends will justify the mean. You know, this is a story that could be, should be told. But after that, I regretted it. You know, I felt like I captured that without that person really knowing, but I also know I wouldn't have gotten that photo had I not done that because it was such an authentic, beautiful moment. Um, but we promised them that we would all come back, and we did. Um, and as we were there, um, there was uh, one young boy who I was working with that many of the people that are affected with leprosy, they have, you know, they get married. They married within the colony, and they have children. Um, um, you know, some of these children are just absolutely fantastic people, um, and they're allowed to live in the colony until their parents die. And then once their parents died, like they're kicked out of the colony and now they have, they had very little to begin with. Now they even, even less. So that's where the family really, really pushes a lot of the children to have an education. Um, cause even in the caste system, they're still trapped, but an education can help them a little bit. And he was a great help to me. And as we were distributing these lights, he kind of acted as my interpreter. Like he was really, really wicked smart and hard worker and, when we we're done, I said, hey, you know, I was going to stick around Kathmandu and take some personal photos. Um, but what it, what would you think if I came back and um, I took portraits of people in the colony? And the reason I had said that to him is earlier in the week when we were distributing lights, I met this man who couldn't wait for me to come to his room. And he showed me a photo, a printed photo of himself in a frame. And he was probably in his early 20s. And now he was, you know, late 50s, uh, early 60s, and just ravaged by leprosy and time. And he was so proud to show me that photo. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, that photographer had no idea the value of that photograph that he was taking at the time that he did. Wow. And I, I just thought when I was talking to this boy, I'm like, you know, what if I came back and I took these pictures and I took these portraits and then I were to make prints and give them to, you know, each person. And he was like, you would do that? And I was like, of course I would. I mean, I would totally do that. You know, I said, well, why don't you see who's interested? And literally everybody in the colony wanted it. They wanted their portrait taken. And what was unbelievable is, they showed up wearing their best clothes and, you know, there were men that would open up a box and inside the box was a traditional Nepali hat that had never been worn before. Wow. They put it on their head and it'd sit for their portrait. And it was really an incredibly profound and really spiritual moment. Um, yeah. You got to but, give them a moment where they, they felt beautiful and, and proud to be who they are through, through, Correct. Basically. Oh, Correct. Gosh. And I and I photograph them just like I would my best friend or my family. Right. Mm -hmm. These these weren't people that were affected by leprosy. These were people that were sitting uh, for a dignified, beautiful portrait. Yeah. And that's the way I approached it. And it was so much fun because I literally was in like this little office. It was probably like six foot by eight foot, super, super small. And then there was like one window behind me and all of these people in the colony were in through the window. 
And one of the things I wanted to do is I didn't want to photograph these portraits where they're somber. You know, I wanted it to be about their life and their their joy, the stuff that I had experienced for the last two days in the colony. So for me, I'm totally cool with making myself look like an idiot. You know, I will just <laughs> do anything to be funny, to get a laugh. And it was so great because as I would do something, there was this delay between what I was doing and then the interpreter so I would do something, they would start interpreting it, and then the laugh would come from the person. <laughs> and it, it, it gave you time to, to frame up and everything, them. though, on them, I bet. <laughs> that so it was delay. perfect timing for yeah. me to be able to then capture that image. That's great. You know? um, and ultimately what happened is um, not everybody got to be photographed because a lot of people were at the hospital that day, and um, I, I, I promised them that I would come back and I'd bring the prints and I would bring, you know, frame prints for each one of them. Um, and that's what I did about a year and a half later. That's and then great. I finished photographing everybody who didn't get to do it the first time around. But it was really interesting because the first time I did a lot of individual portraits. And this time when I came back, everybody wanted to be photographed with their kids and their wives and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I photographed the remaining people in the colony. And then I, I this time around, I was smarter. Um, the boy who I had worked with, um, I, I was able to, uh, get the digitals to a printer in Kathmandu and they went ahead and printed them so we could get them their, their prints right away. So oh, nice. it was an incredible, incredible experience on so many different levels. Oh gosh. That's so crazy. Um, going, going back to kind of talking about that moment of knowing when to take a photo or not take a photo. I myself in the last, just to give you a little backstory in the last year or so, I've been doing more humanitarian and philanthropic photography work and i i recently have come across this the the question around like the ethic of when you should take a photo or not to is it should you take it just for the sake of being able to the story that you're going to tell the greater the permission the greater good like i would love to get your perspective on on kind of the the, those ethics behind that especially when you're photo i mean when you're photographing especially a leper colony but just in general the the ethics around then kind of how you have to tiptoe through that situation at times It's really hard. You know, I think, I don't think there's one boundary for all of us. I think we all have to define that boundary. You know, I mean, when I go to myself, right, because I wouldn't want to force my judgment on anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause again, like there, there's, I said, there's some street photographers. I see the way that they approach people. I'm like, I could never do that, but it's <laughs> so inappropriate and wrong. Right. But, you know, it, it elicits and can, can, it, 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 it captures a moment that I can't help but Sometimes say, the wow, means really do powerful. justify the ends. Right? And, yeah. But I, I, you know, I'm not a fan of, you know, paparazzi stalking people. I think that's terrible. No. You know, um, there, there needs to be some boundaries of protection and, and, and space, you know. But for me, I think it's one of those things where you can make the same choice. And depending upon what your motivation is it can be a blessing or it can be a curse. Mm-hmm. That's good. So for mm-hmm. me, when I take, when I take that situation in the leper colony, I didn't take any photos except that one. Mm-hmm. And the reason I took that one is because I saw an incredibly profound moment. Yeah. You saw a moment that felt like she'd capture yeah. hugging this woman who had been ravaged by leprosy, who I don't know how long it had been since she was been hugged. Yeah. And in a very spontaneous moment, my sister went to go and hug her. It was so beautiful. I didn't even think 
what I can say is my motivation was to capture a beautiful moment. And then after that, and I saw how beautiful it was, my motivation was first to capture a beautiful moment. And then my next step was, you know, we've promised these people that we're going to come back and we're going to bring lights mm-hmm. and we need to raise money in order to do that. And I have one photo of this person and my sister, and I can tell this story, right? But then when you see it, it has even more power. Yeah. yeah. So for me, my motivation was to not get rich or to not exploit someone. Um, you know, so for me, that's how I, 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 I felt good about it. And I felt like it was justifiable. You know, my motivation wasn't about my own personal enrichment or tearing someone down or, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. Your own motivations determine whether or not you, you click the shutter in that time, in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I don't want to keep you too much longer, Kevin. We really appreciate your time um, so much. Um, I do have a, just a couple quick questions for you, and then you know we'll send you on your way. Yeah. Um, thank you again for just carving out the time for this. Um, this po- for me, this podcast that is we are on right now uh, is very much a product of you and of JJ Community. Um, you know, the black and white is worth the fight. The the hashtag, the Instagram, all of that really came very organically from the JJ pages. And I was, in fact, working as a volunteer on a JJ page when I decided to start my own, and it, and that's what this was. And that's that's the brand. That's the same name. The same name that we have now is is from that. Um, so, so much of that is because of you. Um, and here we are now trying to create this podcast where we can hopefully give back to that audience and a greater audience of just saying, you know, uh, talking to artists, creative, successful people like yourself, and really just getting a lot of your philosophical views on, you know, what this art is, where it comes from, um, what to do when you don't feel artistic, all these things. Um, here's the question. Do you, Kevin, this is my question to you personally. Do you have any advice for us moving forward? Yeah, we're, we're just getting started on this. We're, we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants at the moment. Well, first of all, I think what you're doing is, is really great. And I'm not just saying that to blow sunshine up your way, but I, I think it's really great because I think these are, these are, it's, I, I heard one time a, a level of success is just the ability to call yourself an artist hmm. because that's, that, that comes with a certain amount of weight, right? Like I'm an artist, I'm a creative, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's kind of a heady statement. And I think it's one of those things where um, you can go away to art school and you can learn technique, right? But to really talk about what does it mean to be an artist? What does it mean to be a creative? What does it mean to encounter failure? What does it mean to change your trajectory when you're going in one other one direction? You know, and I think having these discussions and giving people the opportunity to kind of vet their ideas or to hear from other people you know, for me, you know, I stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, I, I've learned so much from people that were gracious enough with their time and their talents and their energies. Um, and I truly got blessed, you know, doing that. And I think what's so exciting that you guys are trying to pull in people to share this. Um, you know, and I guess what I would ultimately say to you guys is this is keep making the next right step. You know, keep doing this. 
um, you know, define what success looks like, you know, for you guys. And, and like, even me, like when I go to the JJ community and I, and I went to, you know, lots of love, like I didn't like, Oh yeah, we'll start this international foundation and we'll start this largest photo community on Instagram. It was just like, no, this is feeding me. Yeah. I, I'm passionate about this. And I don't, I remember thinking with the JJ community, I'm like, why am I doing all this? Like, what is it going to lead to? I didn't know, but I was just passionate about it. So I just tell you guys, if you guys are passionate about getting artists and creatives to tell their stories and it feeds you, then I guarantee you it's going to feed others. Thank you, brother. That's That's great. Yeah. Thanks a lot. That's what we want to do, man. So very cool. Kevin, where can people find you on the internet? What you're doing right now? Probably I'm assuming you have lots of love, um, socials, your, your personal socials. Where can people look you up? Yep. So, um, I'm uh, active on Instagram, so it's at Kevin Custer, and it's K-U-S-T-E-R. It sounds like General Custer, but spelled with a K. Um, and the number one way, you know, is also on the JJ community. Um, so that's at JJ community on Instagram. Um, and then uh, the Watts of Love, it's uh, um, wattsoflove.org, um, and you can always contact me that way. Um, you know, and I just always tell people, I'm like, I don't know who this will resonate with. I don't know if it'll resonate with someone, but if it does, I always encourage people to reach out. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, 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 it's one of those, I would not have connected with Josh had I not reached out. And I thought to myself, there's no way this guy will get this email. There's no way this guy will respond. And I did it anyway. And not only do I have a business partner and a successful business with him seven years later, but he's one of my dear friends. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I just took the next best step. And I'm like, I'm going to reach out to him. So um, that's what I'd say. If if someone wants to connect with me, you know how to reach me. Excellent. Next best step. We have one last question for you. One last uh, fun little... Hard right turn question right at the end. Yeah. This uh, this has nothing to do with anything we've talked about, but we have to know. Uh, this is the question. If you could hack Donald Trump's Twitter and send out one tweet today, just one, what would it say? It's a big responsibility. Yeah. Take your time. You only get the one tweet. Yeah, hold on, hold on. Right. I, I, know, I know roughly what I want to say, but I got to think of what's the, what's the way to say it. Hold on. Um, I'm torn between goodbye <laughs> just goodbye. <laughs> or, or I didn't mean any of it. That Ooh, second one. That is second one's good. Beautiful. I didn't mean. Yeah, any of that's it. beautiful. Jk, Jk. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Just Jk. That's what it is. Just two words, two letters. Jk, guys. Jk. Or just yeah. April Fools. Yeah. Just wait till April first yes. and just put April Fools. Yeah. I think that's. I think I'm going to go with the second one. I think I'm going to go with the second one. I didn't yeah, mean any of it. I didn't mean any of it. That's good. And that's you're thinking the best of the man. That's good. You, yeah. You're thinking maybe it was a big mistake or a yeah. joke. He's he's recognizing that yeah. he messed up. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh, that's great, Kevin. Kevin, you are a gem, and I thank you. I hope I get to talk to you again really soon. Yeah, thank you, man. This is really inspiring. Yeah, thanks stuff. so much, guys. I appreciate it. Keep it up. You know, again, I don't know where this is going to go to. And you guys don't know either. Just make the next best step. And, you know, when you look back on it, you know, you'll wind up in a place you didn't think you would, but you got there by making a, uh, you know, next step. And 
you know, when it comes out, just make sure you guys drop me an email so or a text, whatever, so I can check it out. We'll definitely be in For contact sure, with you, bud. Appreciate it so much. All right, guys. Take care. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin. Talk to you soon, bud. All right. Bye-bye. Amen. That was great. I'm not going to lie. I was just having fun just sitting there listening. I'm glad he took that Playboy question well. He I did just, it. He did it really well, and he really he, just go for he it. really went into it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you you asked it in a very good, delicate manner of being like, "Hey, from you know the outside looking in, you're at Playboy for 20 years, and then you're suddenly kind of this Christian humanitarian philanthropist, right? What what's the reasoning behind what's that, the or dealio? what's the, the deal for that? All right, uh, all right, future Dustin, out. have fun with this one, man. I know it's going to be a great you one. You know I don't like listening to the entire thing when I edit it, right? So like, I'm not going to hear anything. At this. this point, I really want you to listen to the Well, now I will, but you've just cost me a good percentage of my life. We're still talking. I'm going to hit end. Present Dustin, get, get, right. please quit off on future Dustin. Let him not work anymore. Fox out. Love. B-Rose out. B-squared. All right. Peace.